Welcome to you who are here in the room, uh, a number of our kind staff uh, and facilitators of our service are here with us. As Tim said, uh, we are rehearsing for uh, a welcome back to you all uh, into the building, but also to provide our live stream. So your camera angle will be slightly different at home tonight, um, but it's exciting for us to make this building ready. Uh, we're so excited as a team. Uh, we can't wait to see you back in here with masks and everything, of course, but it'll be wonderful uh, to be preaching to a live audience. Again, I can tell you, no disrespect for the, the few of you who are here uh, urging me on tonight. Well, we're going to be continuing our series in James, and um, tonight I'm talking about faith roots and shoots, and I'm going to be reading from James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the script was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodgings to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Well, I want to say this is a really challenging talk. It really challenged me because I come from an evangelical branch of the church which has been so passionate about being really clear that we're saved by faith alone and not by works so that no one can boast. But what I find really exciting and interesting about engaging in this passage from James is it's really opened my eyes again to how the whole of Scripture sits together perfectly but also how all of these different gospel writers are, are saying something very similar, something that really you know, synchronizes perfectly. And, and I, I can't wait to get into this passage with you. You know, this week I was just reflecting how the world is addicted. Now, when I say that, I know a number of you are going to think about, about maybe drugs and alcohol and other substances we could be addicted to. But I was thinking about a different sort of addiction this week, about the addiction we have to information. Now, Undoubtedly, this is partly driven by the anxiety I have around COVID and the fact that I, I found myself, even though I know it's bad advice, scrolling the feeds and finding out new stuff. I, I've, I gave up biology at GCSE, but I feel like I know no, more about science now than I've ever done at any other point in my life. But information has become the commodity behind all commodities. It drives go, global politics, global finances, social trends, commercial interests, and the consideration of our minds. You know, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and Facebook store at least 1,200 petabytes between them. That's 1.2 million terabytes. One terabyte is 1,000 gigabytes. 
In 2020, there were around 40 trillion gigabytes of data on the internet. That's 40 zettabytes of information. You think I made all those different words up, didn't you? you know, with my youngest son, you know, goes to school and comes back, and it's a gazillion, million, trillion, dillions. And I'm thinking, did they teach you that today in counting? And it's just another grand... No, these are genuine terms which qualify vast sums of information that are floating around in our world right now. You know, the strange thing about information is that you can never have enough. You know, learning, knowledge, and information are constantly celebrated in our lives. We elevate learning as a parent, as an ex-teacher. You know, we're getting children excited about learning. You need to know more, consume more information. There, there, there is nothing unvirtuous about finding out more important stuff. Equally, if we withhold information, it's seen as an affront to justice and liberty. I can't believe you didn't tell me that. I can't believe I didn't know that. I can't believe you didn't share that. You know, we feel indignant when information is withheld. Yet at the same time, our preoccupation with gathering information often blinds us to injustice and slavery that exists in our society on our doorsteps. That sounds like a really strange thing to say, especially when really you know, amazing charitable partners like IJM you know, use information to enable us to become aware of injustice in the world and then take action. Don't get me wrong, there's absolutely a place for information. But if you go on Twitter tonight and you surf the net through any number of different important issues of social conscience, you would find hundreds if not thousands of people all arguing online. They might have been arguing all night. They, they will have had a great resource of information behind them, amazing facts and statistics and points. But at the end of their argument, has anyone actually been helped? Uh, have the poor been released from poverty? Have slaves been released to freedom? You know, has society changed? The key thing is here not separating information out for its own sake, but recognizing that information leads to action. And there's a necessity to that. And that's what James is really pressing into tonight. You know, the context in which James is teaching was actually not dissimilar to our own. I know that sounds crazy. You know, in, in the first century Israel, they didn't have the internet. Can you imagine all the scribes carving into stone tablets a zillion terabytes of information? They'd be pretty exhausted by the end of that. You know, they didn't have that kind of facility. But the acquisition of knowledge was equally frenetic. The world of first century Palestine was heavily influenced by two forms of social superiority. One was that of religious Judaism, dominated by learned rabbinic scholars from the religious sects of the leaders of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They elevated learning. It was a credit to you if you went to the University of Gamaliel, like, uh, like Paul did. You know, they played high five about the rabbi who taught them. This is, this is the best rabbi, he's got the best information. But equally, there was the influence of Greek Platonism amongst the Gentile community, which elevated intelligence and rational thought to meritocratic levels. The more you knew, the more important you were. Plato himself envisaged a futuristic government called a newtocracy, meaning mind power. This was the aristocracy of the wise, where people who had a huge amount of information at their fingertips were at the top of the pile. And people who were uneducated were at the bottom of the pile. And people who knew more ruled over people who knew less. You know, James opens up today's passage 
from chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, with a straw man argument. That's an argument which is, which is taken to the kind of extreme to illustrate a point. Now, he says, a person who claims to have faith but no deeds. Now, think about that for a minute. I don't know many Christians who claim to have faith but no deeds. So, you're sitting there right now thinking, yeah, this doesn't really apply to me. I, I'm not a Christian who, you know, thinks that faith and all deeds can be kind of separated. You know, I know that my faith has to be worked out with fear and trembling. I know that God's created works for me to do in advance. You know, and I, I know that I should be living a life worthy of the calling of the Christian Cool, and, and, and I've got to work that out practically. We know all those things. But this straw man argument is still relevant to us today because I want to ask you, how's that working out for you? How is your faith being worked out in action? It's, it's a challenge. I'm speaking to myself tonight as much as I'm speaking to anyone else here because I, I'm, I recognize that that straw man argument seems to apply to me pretty tightly. I'm thinking, yes, I've got a lot of information at my fingertips. I've got a lot of knowledge, but how is my faith made real in action? And that's what James is arguing about tonight. James is using this Greek debating device to make his argument so transparent. In verse 15, he says, if a Christian brother or sister is without clothes or food, and you say, go, I, I wish you well, have, have a lovely meal, you know, get warm and have a great night, but doesn't actually provide any food or any clothing or any warmth or any shelter, then, then how, how much better off is the person of having met them? Matthew 5.16 says that men may see your good deeds and praise their Father in heaven. You know, it's, it's fascinating to say, coming from a background which fought so hard to make sure we all understood that we were saved by faith and not by works because somewhere along the line we lost sight of the importance of works, even that Jesus himself called us to works. It's not faith or works, it's faith and works, but works are transformative too. You know, I, I, um, I'm not a great runner, but in 2000 I ran the New York Marathon. Uh, I, I did very little training I was a kind of sporty guy and I got called up by a, a friend who was running a charity and a couple of their runners had dropped out and he phoned up and said, hey, well, you know, can you and you, a couple of your buddies run the New York Marathon for me uh, this coming weekend? Uh, I was like, yeah, okay, sounds fun. Uh, flights on Virgin, you know, hang out in New York City, see the city whilst running along, you know, it's going to be good. I'd probably run around the block a few times before we left and then, you know, we flew there and, you know, uh, we went out and explored New York for the whole of the Saturday, you know, we, I think we rode on Friday night, went out for, you know, explore the city at night time, did a full tourist adventure on the daytime, probably walked about 26 miles, um, obviously great preparation for the run. And, and then we were given these um, running t-shirts. Now, the one thing I do know about sports is what you wear is really important. And, um, and, and if you're going to run anyway, you need one of those really light singlets that kind of glide up and down your body as you're running along. And uh, we were given these really thick twill t-shirts, and they were all too big for us, because obviously we, you know, we just rocked up and hadn't been measured properly. And they had the name and logo on the front here, all super heavy cotton. And um, I, I started the race on the Sunday morning, and, and I did treat it as a race, quite competitive. Loads of like super fast whippet people in front of me. So I kind of kept up with them for the first 10K, ran the fastest 10K I've ever run in my life, and then realized there was actually another 30K to go, uh, which made it extremely difficult. But, but I started sweating. There's too much information in this illustration, by the way, so if you're squeamish, turn away now. Um, and, and as I started sweating, the weight of my T-shirt, meant it started traveling in the opposite direction to my skin. And it was sort of zipping up and then zipping back down again. 
and the more sensitive parts of my chest began to bleed. So there was the kind of, there was the logo, and there were two streams of blood running down either side. And I'm going to tell you, I've never felt more uncomfortable for my life, especially the thought of an, another 30 kilometers ahead of me. And, and in that moment of just extreme agony, it wasn't my legs that was hurting, it was my chest, I, I, I said, Lord, I, I just really need some Vaseline right now. It's got to be the strangest prayer I've ever prayed. Um, but, but I kid you not, the length of the church, just this length here, I prayed the prayer as if I was standing here on the stage. When I got to the narthex doors at the back of the church, a slightly shady looking gentleman with a leather jacket on opened his jacket holding a large pot of Vaseline and said to me, hey buddy, you need some Vaseline? I was over to him like a shot, lathered my body in Vaseline and I carried on running the race. You know, it's amazing to me. That, that was a significant amount of time ago but I remember it like it was yesterday because it was love in action. It was actually works first. And as I responded to that moment, I was, I was, I was, I was just amazed and filled with gratitude and praise that God might hear my prayer and through the works of another might demonstrate his love to me in a very practical and slightly visceral way. Isn't God good that works are significant and important and they speak so much about the love of God? I think... I've spent an awful long time debating the issue of works from a cerebral perspective rather than recognizing just the value of works themselves, recognizing the impact that works have on others. And as Christians, we can get tied up in all of these complex and difficult debates without recognizing just how beautiful the work of God is in the world around us. You know, one of the great challenges to our understanding of this passage is the interpretation we have for the term faith. In the Greek, this term is the word pistis. And pistis is a characterization in Greek. It's almost a character. It's a, it's a person of trust, reliability, and good faith. This is, also, this is similar to the Roman culture who had the, the character fides, who represented fidelity, a sense of togetherness and community. The point here is that faith in Scripture has a quality of action, a personality to it, which is lost to us today. If I asked you about this debate, you know, should we, should we have faith, you know, we're saved by faith or we're saved by works, you're thinking about faith as in a statement of belief that Jesus Christ died, rose again, and ascended into glory and has forgiven you your sins and therefore made you right with God. Now, when we think about faith, yes, that's all true. You know, and if you don't know that news tonight, then you can make peace with God and become a Christian by coming to him with repentance and faith and inviting you into your heart. That's how you become a Christian. But when James is talking about faith here, he doesn't have that statement specifically in mind. It's not a formula for him. It's the word faith is about making your, live, your belief active. It's an actual outworking of something. The term itself is not an either-or. It's actually living out your action. Faith to James is more than the knowledge of Christ. It's what I'd call the activity of the knowledge of Christ. And therefore, our, even our, our, our semantic interpretation of the word itself is quite dry and separate from the way it's actually 
meant to be espoused, the way it's meant to be worked out. A number of years ago when I was training for ministry, I, I, was, I was really passionate about apologetics, which is when you answer really difficult questions on the hoof. And I made it my business to kind of like gin up on all this stuff and have all these facts that, you know, so I could whip them out and kind of, you know, deal with the arguments. And I was doing this mission in Cheltenham and it was involved a, Chel- a big school in Cheltenham as well. And on the final night, we were going to have Alistair McGrath, this famous speaker and theologian. And, and we were going to have Jonathan Aitken, this amazing ex-politician who'd become a Christian and gone to jail and all sorts of exciting stuff. And, and, and I've got to be honest, it, it wasn't going well. I mean, it wasn't what they were doing wasn't going on. I mean, that hadn't happened yet. It's just that we were having tons of arguments, like the arguments you have on Twitter, with loads of students about faith and stuff, but nothing was really landing. It was like it was all really cerebral. Everyone loved a good argument, but no one really was connecting with Jesus. And I took a kind of prayer walk, generally feeling pretty miserable around the town, and I went down one particular road, and I was just, you know, thoughts to myself, kind of, oh my goodness, how's tomorrow night going to go? And it's all a bit, oh, it's not really happening. And then two student-age women appeared on the side of the road. They said, oh, excuse me, could you, could you help us? And, and I was like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, yeah. What, what do you need? What do you need? They said, oh, there's a, there's a rat in our kitchen. And, and I thought, oh, this is a bit odd. Um, you know, they're sort of inviting me in, and I'm thinking I'm a trainee priest. I mean, should I go into these girls' house, you know, alone? What's going to happen next? Anyway, I, I, kind of, I, I kind of committed, so it was a bit awkward. So then I went across the road, you know, went up the stairs, and then I, I went into the lobby, and there was another three young student women there, all sort of shrieking about, saying, oh, can you help us with the rat? Can you help us with our rat? And I was like, I was waiting for sort of Jeremy Beadle or someone from You Been Framed to appear at any moment, you know, with kind of cameras. I felt like the stooge in some kind of setup. And then we, they, they said it's in the kitchen. And in my mind, I'm like suspended disbelief. You know, what? There's a rat in the kitchen. What am I going to do about it? And then I got into the kitchen. They said it's behind the toaster, which got, you know, it's even more obscure. It's by, I was looking at the toaster, looking at these girls behind me, thinking, I, don't, I really don't know. Is this a psychological experiment? Are they psychology students? You know, what? What's happening here? Is this trying to prove the gullibility of the male species? I, I, I don't quite know what was going on. Anyway, so I, I kind of walked forward very like nonchalantly, looked over the top of the toaster, and there was a massive rat sitting on their sideboard eating the crumbs. And it was literally just sitting there. Like I was like, oh my goodness, there really is a rat. And so I, I took one of their saucepans, I took the lid off, and I had the pan on one side and the lid on the other. And I kind of leant over the toaster and I held one at either end and I, I kind of scuttled the lid and the pan together and caught the rat in the pan. And these girls behind me absolutely screaming, like freaking out, especially when I walked towards them with the pan with the rat in it. And I walked downstairs and I, and I just, you know, I said, I, you know, I've got, you know, obviously got the rat in the pan and I kind of I, you know, went a little way down the street. I was trying to look humane, you know, I was very kind to the rat, sort of let the rat gently out into the street and the rat kind of gave me a little ratatouille wave and, and ran off and I gave them back the pan. Absolutely, this is absolutely true. And so I gave them back the pan and they were sort of, thank you so much. I was like a, you know, complete hero and I just walked away. And I got about sort of 10 yards down the road and I just thought, you absolute idiot. You just walked away. You know, actions, works, give way to faith 
as much as faith give way to actions. I've been praying for an opportunity to tell people the knowledge of the love of God, the faith as we know it, and everywhere I was working, it didn't seem God was working. But God opened a door through a strange rat behind a toaster to five young student-aged women, and I just walked away. The next day, I went back. I knocked on the door. They opened the door. They went, rat man! Rat man's here! I said, this is a bit strange, but I said, you know, I, I'm a Christian, and I'm here on a mission to tell people about Jesus. I was actually having a walk around the block feeling a bit despondent when the whole rat thing went down. And I just wondered if you would spare me five minutes so I could tell you a bit more about what I believed. They said, that would be great. Come in. And we sat down. We spent about an hour together having tea and and talking about Jesus. Because works give way to faith. And, And we spent so long debating this stuff and getting stuck in it that we failed to recognize that actually these two things cannot be separated. As James is saying, you know, one begets the other, but it's not always the way round you anticipate. You know, it's so interesting to me that Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, rejected James. He didn't even want the book of James included in the canon of Scripture. You know, and I believe his rejection of James was just a misunderstanding of the word faith. He claims St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to the others, for there's nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. I find it remarkable that he read the words that I'm reading and yet he did not see the synergy between faith and works. What offended Luther was the apparent emphasis on works, but that's largely because he interpreted faith and works as these two separate entities. For him to suggest that you needed Christian works as well as Christian faith was an offense to Christ. It's like it, it made him feel like the gospel was less powerful than it really was. James seems to make that point in verse 24. He says, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. I wonder whether Luther got stuck on that final word, whether he he kind of read it in a hurry. A person is justified by what he does and not by faith. But James didn't say that. James said, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone alone. You've got to see these two things go hand in hand. Compare that to Paul's writing in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not for yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. Wow, hold on a minute. It seems that James and Paul are saying things very differently. Are they saying different things though? And how does that relate to our lives tonight? Well, you know, all of the pastoral letters are applied to a different context. Paul writes to the Corinthians because they basically lost sight of all of the law and they're completely licentious. So when you read Corinthians 1 and Corinthians 2, Paul's like saying, you know, should we sin all the more so grace should abound? Like, you know, are we going to just get crazy right now because all that matters is that we've got faith in Jesus? Nothing matters about how we act together or in the body or with, our, you know, with the way we live. No, Paul reasserts the law to the Corinthians but then you go over to the to to the Galatians and Paul writes such a different letter to the Galatians the Galatians have got all wrapped up in the law they're like doing the old law again and they've got really legalistic so Paul's like saying look guys just 
get rid of a bit of the law. Like, you know, kind of ease out of that because you're under a new covenant of grace. Is Paul saying different things? No, Paul's correcting the course of the ship. If you go sailing, you know, you might think you pull in the sail and you hold onto the rudder and you just hold it and then you go in a straight line. But you don't because the wind blows you off course all the time and you've got to adjust the steering to get to your destination. Paul's adjusting the steering in order that the church would get to the correct destination. And James is adjusting the steering so the church that he's addressing can also get to the right destination. James is correcting uh, the church from the risk of anatomianism. And it's a long word, but all it simply means is, is a belief that all that matters is faith. Now, anatomianism was the idea that I could become a Christian, put that grace in my pocket, and just live however I wanted to live. I could just be an independent, individual Christian and just be like, yeah, I'm going to do my own thing now because I've pocketed grace. Like, it doesn't matter that, that people are struggling, starving, in slavery, without justice, without freedom, having great need, because all that matters is that I'm saved. And therefore, I'm going to live my life without care and concern for others. My faith is a personal faith. Have you ever heard anyone say that? I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be part of a community because, you know, I, I've got faith. Well, hold on a minute. Faith without works is dead, James is saying, because it's the natural outworking of what it means to be a Christian. We need to recognize that just as much as Paul is trying to help the church out of seeking to perfectly fulfill the law rather than receive the grace of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, James is trying to help the church recognize that social transformation and compassion are an integral part of what it means to be a Christian. And I'm sure none of us would disagree with that. He's saying, make your faith real. In essence, Paul and James are saying something that's absolutely complementary to the other. The Christian faith is not a collection of religious information, but faith knowledge that leads to faith action. You could describe their understanding of faith and knowledge and faith action as a tree. You know, imagine you had no roots. If you had no roots, then you've got no tree. Like, you've just got a stick in the ground. Like, do you remember those broad bean uh, exercises we do? You know, in primary school, they give you a broad bean, a bit of blotting paper with some water in it, and you put it in a jar. I remember this really well. I could have only been about five. But you put it on your windowsill, and, like, and then you watch it. Like, and it's amazing how quickly it grows. But, but it always goes down before it goes up. Like, the first thing that comes out of the broad bean is roots. But once the roots have gone down, the shoot should go up. The same is true for this debate around faith words and faith works, faith knowledge and, and faith action. And when we become a Christian, that seed has come to life. We set down roots without which there is no Christian. But once those roots have gone down into the ground, there have to be shoots to show that that seed is alive. One begets the other. Paul says something similar in Galatians 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. That was one of the legal arguments that they were having with one another. But only faith working through love. One of my favorite phrases in the pastoral epistles. Only faith working through love. Now, in the Greek, that is pistis di agapes. Pistis, the word for faith, 
that's living and active, and agape, that word for sacrificial, life-giving love. Don't you love that great combination? Pistis di agapes. It's faith through love working. Sounds a bit like Yoda. But, you know, it's that inversion, isn't it? It's that it's faith through love working. You want to take the temperature of a living church? Look out for faith through love working. Here, we are so pumped. I guess you can, hopefully you can tell through the screen how excited I am tonight about Scripture, how excited I am about the Spirit of God, how excited I am that you're coming back. I, I, I've not felt this excited like since you know, I arrived here in September. Because I'm so pumped that we are faith through love working to this community. I want to see Parsons Green and Fulham transformed by the love of God. And they're going to be transformed through your words, but also through your works. And so often your works will beget your words. People want to know that you care before they care about what you know. Like We've got to demonstrate the love of God to this community if they're going to have soft hearts to the good news that Jesus died for them and rose again in glory. You know, we've got to demonstrate the love of God with works before we can demonstrate it with words. You know, I could be in danger of adding to the information overload tonight unless we make this teaching real. Why is this relevant to us today? One of my favourite psychologists and coaches, Jim McNeish, says that we've all got these rackets in our lives. Not tennis rackets, not even bad rackets, but kind of legitimised rackets. Legitimised rackets are like, you know, I've got like a racket, you know, to sort of, you know, keep my time organised. I've got an organisational racket. I like to schedule everything. And I kind of manage to exclude people or include people by virtue of my schedule. Some people have got like a financial racket. They're kind of, everything's kind of nailed down and allocated for, so it kind of limits your opportunity to be spontaneous or generous. Some people have got a learning racket. These are more common than you think. I just need to learn a bit more, and when I've learned enough, then I'll be able to take action. Like, I need another degree, maybe a degree on social care, before I can start caring socially. I need to be a psychologist before I can actually offer any good advice to anyone. So I need to retrain. Uh, I need to go on a training course before I'm equipped to serve the homeless or the hungry because, you know, you need to know how to wash your hands properly and, you know, prepare food well. So I need to hold off my faith actions until I've got my faith knowledge in place. You know, one of the great dangers of contemporary church is that we become a, a kind of cork in the bottle of social transformation. Everyone says, oh, what programs are the church running right now? Well, I noticed that the rotors are full. Sadly, there's no opportunity for me to really help anyone because, you know, I can't really do glass door because there's not a chance to really get in on the rotor at the moment. I'll have to wait until someone drops out, maybe next year. You know, we're so, I'm guilty of that. I'm sure we're all guilty of that to a level. But we've got to go, I can't put my faith works on ice. I've got to do it now. I've got to get out there and make something happen now. I've got to demonstrate the love of God right now. I wonder if today we need to acknowledge our learning rackets and decide to be a bit more like James. He says, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. I love that, isn't it? It's like, it's like a real throwdown. <laughs> you know, saying, you know, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. I'd love that. Wake up in the morning, get out of bed, look in the mirror and go, 
I'll show you my faith by what I do. Can you imagine a church that was motivated like that? We want to be a church that's motivated like that, that's so pumped to show the world our faith by what we do. It reminds me of that famous St. Francis quote, preach the gospel always and use words if necessary. Like, this isn't about whether we get saved. Like, let's be really real right now. If you haven't got roots in the knowledge that you're a sinner who's been saved by the blood of Jesus, you're not a Christian. You can become a Christian tonight. All you need to do is actually invite Jesus in, say sorry for those sins, and invite him to wash you clean. That's a work of grace, entire grace, God's grace. But when you've received that knowledge, let those roots give way to shoots and then fruits, because Jesus says you will know them by their fruit. A tree that bears good fruit, that's a tree after the heart of Jesus. Let's not be trees that don't bear fruit. Let's not be trees that are just made up of roots because they aren't trees at all. You might feel ill-equipped or unworthy or uncomfortable for this. But I want to say this is as easy as breathing. Like, you're made to breathe. You can know the knowledge of breathing. But until you start taking a breath, well... James would say, you're just not alive. Let's not know the knowledge of Jesus. Let's not know the grace of Jesus and then live our lives without working it out through our faith actions. You know, don't come, this is, Tim's not going to like this, don't come back to church if you want to do church. (laughs) Don't come back to church if you just want to do church. If it's like a tick thing for you. Like, oh yeah, church, that's great, I've done that. Now I'm going to get on with my life. Come back to church if you want to be church. Like, because church is not something you can do. It's not a tick list and it's definitely not an interesting lecture where you get loads of new information. Church is a body. It's flesh and blood. It's a, the hands of Jesus in a wounded, broken, and hurting world. It, it's a place which has called us to light up our neighborhoods in our actions, in our attitudes, in the things we really do for one another. Let's love one another as Jesus loved us. Let's love this world as Jesus loves it. Come back to church if you want to be church with us. Don't let me or, or Tim or Joe or, or Louis or, or, or Carl or anyone else be a blockage to your opportunity to demonstrate the love of God every day. This morning, when I, when I finished preaching, I don't drink coffee, but a lovely chap came here with four coffees. Looked like they'd been to one of those very expensive Parsons Green shops just down the road. He said, I can see you wanted a coffee, and there's a coffee. I felt too bad to say I don't drink coffee and give it back to him. So I, I cycled all the way home with it in one hand, because my wife does drink coffee. I thought it would be a terrible waste. I took it from him. Oh, thank you so much. I cycled all the way back, sort of juggling along with this coffee in hand and then I heated it up in the white quay for Louis. Uh, He'd been listening to the sermon and he just wanted to show faith action. Here's a coffee. It was just a small thing but it put a smile on my face because here's someone who's heard and put their hearing into doing. What can you do tonight? Can you call a friend, someone who's vulnerable? You know, could you do something tomorrow to demonstrate love for another? You know, it's so important in a year of needing to keep our physical distance from one another that we 
are prepared to come back and make physical steps. Our isolation needs to be an aberration in our Christian journey. It mustn't be the new normal. Here are a few simple steps to take out of this sermon to see your faith knowledge become faith action. Number one, recognize your information consumption and ask yourself if it's matched with compassion function. Number two, own your own rackets, including the discomfort that keeps them alive. You know, recognize that you might have a learning racket that keeps you from taking action because you just feel socially uncomfortable. Number three, let go of any religious justification that works are not a necessary element of faith. Number four, stop waiting for training or facilitation to express the love of Jesus in action. And number five, let your actions inform your faith and your faith inform your actions. I hope I've challenged you. I definitely feel uncomfortable in myself. I know that I need to live this message out tonight, today, tomorrow, and throughout this week. Why don't we stand where we are in your kitchen, in your bedroom, in your bathroom, wherever you are right now. Just stand with me and say, Jesus, I want to be on my feet for the kingdom of God. Holy Spirit, would you come right now and touch every single person in this room, through the camera at home, wherever they are. Lord, we long to turn our faith knowledge into faith works. We know that we're saved by grace, through faith, so that no man might boast. But we also know that we're saved by faith in order that we might express the love of God and receive the love of God. And so, Lord, we pray, use these hands and feet to your glory in the week ahead. Mobilize us and motivate us to be church, a church that changes Fulham and changes the nation. Expand our vision of the power of taking action first and using words later. Come, Holy Spirit. Rest, abide, mobilize us together for your glory. Amen. Just going to hand back now to Colin and to Kat, Johnny, and they're going to lead us in a little bit more worship.